Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Derek Price, and this is Scholars of Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the Academy. I'm your erstwhile co-host, Kyle Romero. And I ball so hard because I'm Terrell Taylor. <laughs> and we're back. Uh, I don't know it. if I ball as hard as Terrell, but we're... We all three scholars at play are back with a real episode. No more what's in your systems. I none mean, of this BS. We're back in with that. books. Yo, Re- chill. Yes. What's in your system was my idea. It's not <laughs> BS. And it's, and it's actually a great idea, and I love it, and I want to do more of them. But. And it's probably the best named thing on this podcast. <laughs> Def- abso- absolutely. But we got some books this time. Well, we got book. We have book this time. Yeah, yeah, we're going to try to take a, we're going to take a really narrow concept and try to just, you know, really drill down on something that's very specific. Book. And book, book is <laughs> book is about metagames. <laughs> do you know Kyle, do you know what a metagame is? Uh, I thought I did, Derek. Um, and then yeah. I read this ding dang book by Stephanie Bullock and Patrick mm. Lemieux. Um, so book, I mean, book what, always do that when book, you book when always you, think you do. know a word. And then you don't know the and word. Terrell, do you realized, know what a metagame is? I thought I did, but then I read this book and realized I never met a game. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> 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 oh, man, we're coming in hot on this episode. <laughs> this is great. This is all staying in. Um, no, it's wonderful. Not. <laughs> uh, so m- metagaming is a word that's that's kind of got uh you know it's it's got some usage and some meanings within the context of video games that that if you're listening and you're familiar with things like MOBAs and fighting games and and sort of multiplayer games you may have heard the term before and usually it refers to sort of like this sort of dynamic and shifting strategy that uh that happens sort of around a a, a multiplayer game and it, and it, it sort of has to do with like the kind of question you might ask yourself is like what character or class or build should i be using uh based on like their current stats or their current abilities and how well they match up against other popular characters that kind of stuff it's really like i said really really common in, in mobas like like league of legends or in fighting games um also, also pretty common in and honestly coming from uh, sort of uh, card games, both you know physical and, and digital. So Magic or Hearthstone, you might ask like, what kind of a deck has a high win rate? Um, uh, but these, this kind of conception of metagaming is basically it's a strategic idea, right? It's a, the emphasis is sort of on on trying to figure out what is the best choices you can make in order to win in some sort of uh, uh, competitive situation. Um, but we read a book, and that book is by Stephanie Bollock and Patrick Lemieux, who sort of take that concept and expand on it a little bit and try to think about all of the ways that we sort of do things with and around and outside and about video games in their book. Kyle, what was the name of that book again? Uh, so the, the name actually kind of helps explain maybe a little bit or just blows your mind even more. The full title is Metagaming. Playing, competing, spectating, cheating, trading, making, and breaking video games. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a five star length. It's a real uh, mouthful of a title. It really, surely is. And let um, me just say, you pulled off the reading of that title very well. Oh, thanks. Tom. Yeah. See, this is the kind of positive Excellent reinforcement read. I've been yeah, missing in the as a eight as months. a literature nerd. I'm kind of interested in the metagaming of the choice of mm. where to put the emphasis on mm. every part of the title. 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. As a historian, definitely. I don't think about things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and as the host, I'm not going to define myself. Um, Terrell, they give us a little like definition of what they mean by metagames. Can you share that with us? Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, here we go. No matter how small, no matter how subtle, the metagame is never insignificant. Before a video game can ever be played, there must be a metagame. The metagame emerges as the material trace of the discontinuity between the phenomenal experience of play and the mechanics of digital games. Metagames are the games created with video games. From popular mods to ironic parodies and fan fiction and forum discussion to the latest trends made famous by professional players, metagaming functions as a broad discourse, a way of playing, thinking, and making that transforms autonomous and abstract pieces of software into games and terms players into game designers. This time I got to give Terrell props for that read because that was also beautiful. The quote there where it says that metagames are the games created with video games seems to yeah. me like probably like they do a lot with metagames in this, you know, and that like everything is a metagame and that, yeah. you know, metagaming, you know, connects the quote unquote real world to like the unreal world, stuff like that. But like when I think of metagaming, when I first learned this term, I think from like you, Terrell, like three or four years ago when I was just getting into this, you know stuff um the way you explained it to me was like it's a game that you play with the game right so you, you can do that physically you know like playing there's like basketball games like horse or something you know like that you can mm-hmm. metagame but in a video game it would be like uh i don't know we're going to talk about a bunch of examples but some some kind yeah. of uh, you know out some kind of stricture or restriction that you as the human place on the playing of the game that is not built into the actual mm-hmm. you know, like program like program language of the kind of digital game itself the software you know it's, yeah. it's so interesting and something that i just kind of want to like throw out there just because like for no other reason than i'm a nerd and it matters to me and it's something that like doesn't exist anymore um, it's not allowed on this podcast drill <laughs> maybe not but um so i met a game that i think i remember playing a lot way back when in the old um Game Boy days when people were playing the the Game Boy games a lot um, was buying a Game Shark and some I think for others they were called Game Genies and they were basically these things that you could basically hack your game with like you put them into the system and then put the game into the Game Genie and enter in a bunch of codes to get infinite lives or whatever um, or maybe infinite of an item or infinite ammo so on and so forth um, and I just remember in the Legend of Zelda there was actually a code that somebody came up with, the, with on the internet uh, that can make it so that you could levitate by pressing the L button. And that basically broke a bunch of dungeons because you could get items um, quicker than you usually could. And, you know, Mm. it's weird to think of that as metagaming because it was really the only thing that anyone was ever trying to do with those things was beat the game without having to, like, work almost. Yeah. Um, So rather than having to monitor your ammo, your ammo is infinite. So, you, you know, that's one thing you don't have to worry about. Or rather than having to, like, beat something within a certain amount of lives, your lives are infinite. So so on and so yeah. forth. Um, but it's just interesting thinking about how that was, that had like the, there are so many things that we could have done with that. You know, you could have probably made your different Mario levels or different ways of playing Super Mario Brothers by having access to the actual code. But of course, now in the days where things are all digital, where, you know, people can burst out patches or designers can burst out patches for their games, you know, after they've already been released. Of course, you're not going to be able to plug in one of those old things that could literally rewire you know, treat your your whatever your game of um, Super Mario Galaxy or I'm forgetting the name of the game of the Mario game that literally just came out. Um, 
What was the last one that uh, came out Odyssey? for the Switch? Odyssey? Yeah, taking Super Mario Odyssey and basically making a game of horse out of it. You know, Nintendo, Sony, yeah. and Microsoft want none of that, but it's just... Yeah. Not, yeah. That was weird nostalgia trip. Apologize. We've got to cut this. It's whatever. No, no. <laughs> no That's that- really good. That. That's a great example because it's precisely like you described a couple of different things there, and like one of them is for Bollock and Lemieux, like definitely metagaming. And then the question for me that we, I think, we will unpack as we work through the text is that Game Shark example by taking making the choice to go out and purchase a Game Shark and slapping your game into it and putting it in your physical console. You're sort of in that. You're sort of uh, acting out some agency, and maybe you have to go and look up certain kinds of hacks to use your Game Shark with. But then on the other hand, Bollock and Lemieux. I mean, and this is sort of getting into the text already. They say that um, something like changing the code itself at a certain level is not metagaming, and that like this sort of balance between like which actions are just re are just sort of what they what they sort of talk as like cheating or something like that, and which things are modifying or you know cheating isn't negatively connotated there. But I think that I think that 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 Game Shark example is a great way to sort of get into the text and start thinking about how they define metagaming and like what does and doesn't count as that kind of stuff. It's a very expansive concept, but mm-hmm. yeah. So I think the, as a really good transition point there, Derek and Terrell. Um, you know, I think we kind of have a good idea of maybe, like, the basic level of metagaming, right? Or, like, what metagaming means uh, in the, in some of its aspects. And so we can maybe talk about what metagaming is not, as you suggest, but also how metagaming has kind of um, its effects come out in certain, like, rules or mechanics, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, let, let's jump into the text right away. Um uh, we so just as a as a quick note, we read the introduction of this text, and you can find it online on uh, well at least as of recording on the thirteenth of May, twenty nineteen, on manifold.umn.edu on their uh, manifold platform. You can read it for free online, so that's kind of cool. Um, so we're going to focus mostly on the introduction, but also probably touch on a few chapters that we might have skimmed personally. But um, maybe just to to go back to the text real quick and sort of piece out a couple of moments in the introduction where Balak and Lemieux are just de- just doing some work of defining the term metagame um, or metagaming as a practice. What were some of the moments where they started defining that word for you where you started to get a real sense of what they were referring to? I can, I can start. I have <laughs> Hey, Derek, how about whole... you start? <laughs> how about I start? That's fine. Um... I so I don't actually have page numbers for this because I read it online. The thing I just plugged, um, but uh, I think they make a lot of different points about what metagaming is and is not, or like how it interacts with other forms of activity and other kinds of products, products or forms of production. A quote that I really like is uh, is quote earlier in, in the introduction where where Balcom you just say um, metagaming attempts to uncover alternate histories of play defined not yes. by code, commerce, and computation, but by the diverse practices and material discontinuities. Oh, right. This is the part you read. Sorry. That emerged between the human <laughs> experience of playing video games and their non-human operations. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, keep reading. That was actually just where I'd stopped. Um, I was thinking yes. about reading that, but I also didn't want to like yeah. keep us keep running. But like, I think that that is actually a really important thing about metagaming is because 
Uh, something that I think that's somewhat implicit in that definition that I read is that metagaming is always happening. Um, and so I'm just thinking about, like, if we step away from video games for a second, thinking about something like football, right? Um, yeah. And the way that people will always say, like, if you take a football player from, or you take a quarterback um, from 2019 and put him in a time machine back to um, the early days of football, it would be like night and day. You know, the idea yeah. of a forward lateral, it's like they would probably destroy if they had a single receiver on the team that understood oh, we don't just, you know, we're not just running the ball. Like, we can run right. all the way down the field and, and, and you know, chuck it like that, such that yeah. there's almost always a metagame going on in any game with any sophistication because there's always the sort of norms uh, or practices that are not necessarily the um, particular rules or, you know, you right. have to do this or you lose, but it's just like, if you're playing this game, obviously you're doing this, right? This is what it means to play yes. that game. So Right, right. And it's, it's a sort of perpetually shifting and changing thing that exists, again, between human experience and the, what they call the non-human operations when referring to video games, but uh, in, in the football metaphor, like rules or expectations of how a game should be played, right? There's like, that, that's the space between the two things allows for development. And uh, the other thing I like about this is the sort of code, commerce, and computation, there are three Cs, and, and sort of thinking about metagaming as, and I think this becomes clearer in other quotes too, metagaming as a foil to ideal, I, like idealized forms of play and more material and, and historically oriented. Mm -hmm. um, again, referring to practices. Yeah. I think an important kind of uh, thing to note here too, that they, they, you know, they, they start mentioning this at the beginning, but it becomes a kind of central feature of the rest of the book, which I read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which we all read. Oh, which my we name all is Kyle. Super read. I can read books. <laughs> he can read um, book. Is that uh, like the standard way of playing a game? Right, like the way we normally think of. Like you purchase a game, you unbox it, you put it in your system or on your computer, you play it to win. That is in itself a meta game, right? Yes, it's a system yes. of rules and kind of understood objectives that are built into how we actually end up playing this game, right? Yeah. And so once you, I mean, this is like the, like, you know, your basic postmodernism, right? It's like once you learn that like, hey, right. there is no such thing as like the objective normal way to do something, right? right? Like, oh, right. it turns out everything is kind of constructed and, um, you know, uh, built out of a variety of norms and rules. And so for me, that kind of was the big turn is once you realize like, hey, there, this is the norm, quote unquote, normal way to play this game is itself a metagame, then that opens up everything, right, to metagaming. Right. So right. trying different tactics, trying, you know, new ways to understand it, even more than that, like the game connecting to the quote unquote outside world. So how you play the game with friends, how you, uh, how certain companies or, you know, Twitch streamers or whatever monetize the game, how they capitalize value out of the, uh, out of gameplay, all of those things are meta games in its like most basic sense. And what I think is cool about this book is that it opens up the space to talk about all those things in one kind of field or with one kind of term. You know, like, this yes. is all meta gaming. It's this broad, expansive thing that can cover Twitch streamers to Anita Sarkeesian to um, modders to Game Shark, the Game Shark. You know, stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 it's and I I, I that made me. You're, 
you made me re remember a different quote that they write later, which is just that this is the metagame defines not the history of the game, but the history of play and the, the kinds of things that people have done with games. Um, it's a sort of, I think it's, a, it, they say this on, on purpose, it's an intentionally more active uh, uh, way of conceptualizing about what we do with games because, and you know, to them, we're always doing something with games. We're always, you know, like, you know, the meta games. there's a quote at some point, and I think we should talk about it uh, in its own right, but, like, metagames are the only kinds of games we play because... Mm -hmm. The, the practice of playing is a sort of active and constructive one, not just in the sense of interactivity where it's like, um, you know, I click on a button in the game and it does something, but that like you are the way you sit, the thing you, the place where you bought the game, the, the YouTubers you watch that tell you how to, how to play a thing, all of that shaping that history and practice of play. Mm -hmm. Um. So I, I mean, do we have any other quotes for that that sort of illuminate that, or do we want to move on to thinking a little bit about uh, one thing? Okay, so uh, speak now or forever hold thy peace. I want to talk cool. about capitalism. Okay, we we, we super <laughs> duper will. Uh, so here's here's a I think maybe here's a bridge, and if it's not, you can just like skip it, and we can do like a different different bridge. <laughs> I'm um, gonna meta this conversation. Yeah, I'm gonna, you're gonna make a meta game out of yeah talking about capitalism yep uh, that is that is actually the scholars that play metagame if you <laughs> if you want to if you want to play the scholars that play metagame just have a conversation about anything and eventually make sure that you are end up ultimately talking about capitalism and then kind of like and when you your head. win and when you win you have to say it's all about late stage capitalism <laughs> Boom. yeah exactly and neoliberalism <laughs> neoliberalism maybe if you're feeling frisky you could go post fordist but i don't know oh that's, man yeah that's, that's sort of like an alternate that's only really if you're down with the stuff. italian automatist that's like <laughs> that's like the expansion right, exactly. you have to be, what is you have social... to be savvy yeah. what is the market for this podcast with these like weird burns <laughs> that we're putting <laughs> there's these... there's there's no one we make this podcast for exclusively for, no one. for our enjoyment <laughs> That's right. That we're making it for this moment right now. This podcast is um, our meta game with a bunch of microphones oh, and graduate Jesus. student funding. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like honestly, that's actually like a legitimate way actually to think about it. Guys, you're making my head hurt. Okay, so let me let's let me make it a little more concrete because ultimately meta gaming is about history history and material practices. That's right. Haha. <laughs> so what are the? I, I thought that when I was reading this, I've read this intro a couple of times, and this time when I reread it, something that stuck out to me was the kinds of disciplines and the sources of knowledge and the ways of thinking and the contexts that Bollock and Lemieux are building the term of metagaming from. Did any of that strike you guys as interesting or surprising, or or did did you get a, a feel? Did you mm -hmm. get some sort of some sense of the historical practices that the term metagaming itself is coming from? I'll take this one. Uh, <laughs> take it, take <laughs> no, it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed how he traced back, uh, met like the, as we said at the beginning, the like n quote unquote normal definition of metagaming as like you know right. trying to find the best way to play you know Dota two or the best character or combo of skills or whatever to use in a fighting game. That kind of definition of meta, the meta, not the playing of the game, but the meta of the game, as right. actually coming. It's been around for like forty or fifty years. You know, um, yeah. He talks about kind of early card games, about Dungeons and Dragons, <clears throat> and how, you know, this guy Garfield, whose name, first name I can't remember, but every time I saw Richard. his name, 
Yeah, I pretty exclusively thought of the, the tiny orange cat who hates Mondays <laughs> and Ooh, loves that lasagna. Um, and, and how, you know, Garfield was kind of tracing that. That was how metagame first got introduced into our lexicon, was from these, you know, games where you had to find the best meta. But it, it gets way more complex when you, when you start getting Steam, right? And these kind of uh, first software, uh, things like YouTube and Twitch... These forms of software that now allow connectivity between creators of games and players of games. So whereas before, you know, you get a deck of magic cards or you buy D&D 2nd Edition or Advanced Dungeons & Dragons or whatever, and you kind of just have to play with it because that's it exists. Like maybe they'll release another book, but you have to go out and buy it or whatever. It's like this kind of complex thing. But once you get Steam and once you get like this, the, the connectivity of the internet, patches become a thing, right? Yeah. And suddenly, creators of the game are actively responding to the meta of, you know, I played a lot of World, and War- World of Warcraft, we all know about this, like, for a long time, warlocks were, like, too OP, overpowered, we all know that word, right? They were too OP, Everyone and then eventually, that. you know, they get, quote-unquote, nerfed in the patch, right? Nerf. These are all terms we understand. They get nerfed in the patch, and then we're, they... We're, um, all, we're all gamers. We're all, game, we're all gamer guys, you know, game, game, game people. Um, <laughs> for the folks who may not be... I will take the five seconds to say that Nerf kind of gets its, you know, force from the Nerf guns. You know, it's like you take a actual gun, but then you turn it into like a Nerf gun. So it goes from, wow, this could kill me to, eh. Exactly. Nothing. Yeah, Nerf is actually a pretty good term for metas, right? Because it becomes the kind of byword for the creator responding to a, like, you know, quote unquote, like uneven meta, right? Right, um, right. So yeah, I, th- that was the kind of interesting transition I found, is how the meta as like a term became built into gaming, very early gaming, D&D, right. you know, card games. And then by when the important transition is the introduction of, you know, second wave internet and uh, platforms like Steam and YouTube and Twitch that allow that kind of uh, connectivity between creators, developers, and gamers. And of course, what Bollock and Lemieux are trying to do is destabilize that as saying, like, you know, everyone is kind of a game designer, right, with metagame, right? right? And so right, like, right. they complicate that, you know, narrative of, like, the creator creates the game, and the gamer plays it, and then the creator changes it, and the gamer has to play it again. Like, it's more complicated right. than that, but how it got built in through these longer historical networks. Yeah. You know, even the nerfing thing is just... <laughs> I hate to be that meta guy in the metagaming <laughs> podcast. Yeah. But uh-huh. I'm just I'm just thinking about the ways in which um, even something like nerfing from a designer's perspective is open to its own kind of meta. Because, I mean, the straight-up nerfing, which I think is what happens in most, game, most games, is take something that's really powerful and make it weaker, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's a right. kind of more complicated metagaming, which I think maybe is even more interesting, is, okay, here's an element of the game that's really, really overpowered, Let's add another element that's like basically the you know, the the predator in the wild that yeah. we we introduced to thin out you know the the oh wow there are way too many Kirby's being way too cheap in Super Smash Brothers. Let's introduce <laughs> something that's like a Kirby killer. So yeah. then now the, the Kirby's rock, have to the be rock like to the scissors. Yes, exactly. But then that then takes the the paper that was getting decimated by all the scissors out there and makes it competitive against the rock. Right? Like I, it's yeah. just I right. don't know. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and and that sort of that sort of well, actually, I have nothing to add to that point. <laughs> Turns out that was just perfect. 
Good job, Derek. You just, no, you just it did was... it well. Way to game explain that. To try. <laughs> just you, just did, you just said it real good. Um, I, I do. I do want to add that that in addition to that sort of the material practices of balancing and that sort of strategic kind of uh, Kyle, I like you. I like the drawing out of the the question of the social because it's like yeah. ultimately like with patching and internet connectivity, then all of a sudden patches become. Not only not only do they have to respond to what's happening, but they also have to respond to the reaction of players. And like you know, too hard of a nerf is going to make people upset. And now you've got this sort of like social meta game that you're playing, where you you know you don't you lose a little bit of autonomy over the decisions you can make. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe leads us a little bit closer to another part of meta gaming, which is the question of ideology. Um, and so. Which, which, interestingly, and this is this is the thing that I think maybe that I the one thing that made me want to talk about these the questions of disciplines and contexts and, and sources of knowledge, is that um, Bollock and Lemieux actually start with this article by Catherine Malibu uh, called "What Should We Do with Our Brain," which is discussing um, this. I think they summarize it as like it's thinking. It's a sort of polemical. Uh, essay that's thinking through the relationships between neuroscience and psychology and and capitalism um and so like trying to make sure that we don't just that that basically make trying to get us to think critically about the how neuroscience functions i think that she is a neuroscientist um so that we don't just end up creating ideas of the self and of the brain that are just amenable to the current economic political configurations of the day Mm -hmm. um and it's from that sort of neuroscience model thinking about the difference between plasticity which is like a like a a neuroscience word for thinking about how the brain is adaptable to um flexibility which is this like the 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 condition of precarity uh, uh that that labor now currently exists uh shout out to the people striking for uber and lyft um and everyone else striking around the world for everything, uh, uh, you know, thinking, trying to make sure that like plasticity, which is about the the, the mechanics of the brain, doesn't just become ide- like ideologically covered over by or as an excuse for the idea of flexibility of labor, of constantly being required to like switch to a different job, switch to different skills, uh, work any sort of number of hours, um, and you know, there's all sorts of connections that spread there you know but i, I can, find go ahead yeah please go ahead no 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 go ahead um i guess i just the thing i want to maybe take a second to like the thing that really kind of wrinkles my noodle for a second about all this uh yeah god that's a terrible phrase um, <laughs> is the ways in which the kind of meta gaming um or the concern for the meta that you know a designer might take into account to make sure that the game's balanced right that um, that nothing's overpowered uh, for the sake of, I guess, almost the stimulation of the game, right? Such that anybody can enter in with from any um, character angle or any perspective and still have a chance to kind of play it. And that keeps people pouring money, pouring time, pouring so on and so forth into the game, keeps the, right. the life of the game going. Um, and then, you know, they, they because um, Bullock and the Mule pulled again from Malibu later in that introduction to talk about the ways in which... Um, metagaming kind of works in the ways of gamifying um a corporate atmosphere the ways that numerous companies i think they talk she talks about or they talk about valve um who else here google pixar all have these Mm -hmm. weird ways of gamifying their office spaces um because that notion of brain plasticity 
uh, improves productivity, right? Right. Um, and have that concern for the meta and what generates the most, dare I say, vitality of a game space can translate mm. to kind of economic concern of sorts. Right. And it's it's weird how um, making sure that something is lively um, is also a way of making sure that something's profitable. It's I don't know. I'm, right. That's the the connection no. and the the contradiction is this this tantalizing to me yeah it's it's like metagaming is supposed to be a term that re-empowers and like the point i was building to goes right with what you're talking about that like metagaming is supposed to be a critical term which is which intervenes and transforms right they they list like galloway's idea of counter gaming and wark's Mm -hmm. idea of the gamer theorist and flanagan's Mm -hmm. idea of critical play and games of multitude from um Oh, I have the deputer and, and uh, I can't remember the other person. It's like it starts with a D, but um, the Dyer games of Empire. Ford. Dyer Witherford. Um, all of the, like, basically they're saying all of those terms kind of posit this imaginary future or like maybe a horizon that isn't an actual future of like when games will have critical potential. Mm. And they're saying metagaming is historical and it's a material practice and it's all, and like we're already doing it. Like we we are acting, we are already making metagames. Let's make ones that are critical. But your point is that it's so very easy for the activity of the player or the worker um, to end up getting vacuumed up by capital and reincorporated, right? That liveliness or that vitality can easily be transformed, right? I think, uh, you know, and this is something they wrestle with later when they talk about mods. Um, it's really easy for, for, cert- for, for you know, capital to leech off of the energy and the creativity and in fact it has to leech off because uh, that's what capitalism is uh off of that off of that i like that word vitality i know that's an important word in your work but um mm-hmm. uh yeah I, I that that relationship between an active you know metagaming is, re, is almost like a, a potential for redemption or transformation and mm-hmm. yet that sort of capture <laughs> that the that that it, it that it exists within is is yeah it's it makes it complicated. And I think yeah. the, the text kind of preserves that, that and I complexity. Think it, it goes to show that, you know, all of the game gaming as a metagaming and gaming both like video gaming and other types of games is imbricated within a world deeply structured by consumption and capitalism, right? right? Like yes. play is deeply related to consumption, especially right. in the quote-unquote normal metagame of how we understand gaming, right? Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think we ultimately touched on all of the other sort of more, I think, basic kinds of questions of understanding what metagaming is doing, unless you guys wanted to add something else. Just glad we talked about capitalism. So glad. we always. I mean, it's it's always there. It's always got to be there. I mean, like, just for a, a short plug for why I'm always so weird about it, is, you know, <laughs> and why I love this book so much, um, Yeah, is that to have, you know, discussions about video games often tend to be solely focused on, like, the game, you know, or, like, the text, which is good and important, and we need to do. Um, But very often, uh, I I find myself thinking, like, well, but, like, what about the person playing this and, like, their perceptions and also Mm -hmm. how that person is kind of, I'm going to say imbricated again, imbricated, you know, in in a world, right? How they're, like, living in a world, and we have to understand those relationships and so just by kind of employing this term which you know maybe metagaming gets a little too broad and does a little too much work for them but it just explodes that artificial dichotomy right between like the Mm. text and the context between uh the player and like reality just say like no no look 
it's all metagaming, right? Like it's all right. it's all kind of part of this larger process called metagaming. So whereas, you know, we like to think the you know, normally we think that, you know, there's the creator and the player and the text and they all are kind of existing together. Like, nope. Uh, or they're all kind of existing separately. No, they're actually existing together in this like broader conception of what we call metagaming. And so yeah. to take something like, oh, you know, we're going to talk about Dota 2 and esports, which is, I think, their fifth chapter, and talk about how like money is shaping games, right? And like the prospect of winning right. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, is shaping the way that games are played and that games are understood. And that this has um, national differences too. So like meta metas in south korea are different than metas in america and while you know national boundaries are not hard lines it's important to recognize you know differences in how games are approached and how all kind of approaches to gaming are constructed culturally right 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 borders are fake but they still have lots of power (laughs) exactly they still can shape things exactly yeah um i i have like a i have some like sort of critical questions that we could like touch on any of them that are interesting to us. I have one that I'm particularly personally interested in, but I it wanted is. to throw it out to you guys to, to take, take charge on, on where you wanted to steer it. Do it. Okay. I'm going to steer it. I'm going to, I'm, I'm grabbing the, you are the host. by the horns. I am the erstwhile co-host. Ah, uh, yes. Terrell erstwhile co-host. And a baller for life, right? Yeah, I think he is a baller for life. I mean that a ball so hard, badass so chief. That's yes, all, yeah. all the above, all correct. AKA, AKA. Yeah. Um, so the one, I guess the the one I have a couple questions here, but the one that I really, I guess, care about or find most interesting, or I'm thinking of, about a lot in other contexts, uh, in in other parts of my work, is. Um, the status of the metagame and whether or not it's it's a conscious act or a, a, an unconscious act. Um, and I think this actually sort of matters for the second section of our podcast here where we're going to talk about some quote-unquote metagames that we play or have played or have created. Um, and so so I'll just lay it out here. So at, at a certain point, Bollock and Lemieux are talking about... Uh, I forget what the context is. They're sort of talking about oh this is coming from i mean this is also this is also a quote that starts the entire uh, introduction um let me just read it i mean it's a short one uh humans make their own and this is uh, in brackets metagames but they do not know that they make them and this is malibu who has in, in the original malibu quote is uh humans make their own brains comma but they do not know that they make them and that in itself is a transfer uh, a transformation of a marx quote which is that humans make their own history but they do not know that they make it mm. um and so this marx filtered through malibu filtered through bollock and lemieux um, filtered through Derek press <laughs> filtered through me uh you know right around that that uh this fact that this idea of acting without knowing and the i the 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 power of sort of the unconscious level of art and production and kind of stuff is something I've been I've been sort of wrestling with uh, a lot recently, and I think here's here's why. Well, so a lot of the a lot of the things that they so let me make this point first. A lot of the things that they discuss as metagames are sort of conscious or intentional or extra, like goals or constraints that players give themselves or that that groups decide on that they're going to follow, right? Like. 
the the meta that we've been referring to with like fighting games or 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 uh, online multiplayer games. That's sort of like something that arises from the social encounter through the multiplayer game. Mm-hmm. But even things like speed running yeah. or or uh, creating modifications, these are things where the person is sort of actively engaged in in taking the software, taking the game, and doing something a little different with it. And I and I think the reason I think it's worth dwelling on this question of are metagames conscious or not is that um, if metagaming is supposed to be this political, critical, transformative thing, um, then it sort of matters who is aware of doing... Like, the question is, like... Uh, are people who make metagames aware that they're doing this critical, you know, thing? Mm. And and so a, a classic example of this in and this is where my head's at in other spaces is thinking about critique and and thinking about the political the ways in which that texts or pieces of artwork or games can be political. So Frederick Jameson has this very well known idea that like that te- texts have a political unconscious that texts speak to the political conflicts of an age in a way that critique or reading or interpretation has to sort of draw out, right? Like we need the scholar, the scholar, I mean, implicit in, in his, in his definition, I wish I had a quote, I should have looked up a quote for this. Um, implicit in it is the idea that the scholar needs to come and read these texts that were written at this, you know, at this uh, tumultuous time in history at certain, by some sort of author and find that hidden <laughs> political uh, um, <laughs> I'm I, sorry. Terrell, sorry, should, sorry. It's I. I, I just want to jump respond. in. I just want to yeah. jump in, and you know, I I, I want to pass the mic back to you in just a second. But yeah, I just yeah, yeah, find yeah, it interesting that, like, I'm sure that that's probably what he said in the political unconscious, and I think I've got it in, um, in uh, because I'm sitting in my apartment right now. I'm pretty sure I can go in my living room and pull it off the shelf and dig it up. But it's just interesting that he would say that about. A particular point in time, probably structured by, given that he's a Marxist, surprise, like capitalism. Um, <laughs> right. But we could also say that in 2019 about a variety of circumstances. And it's just interesting that the critic has the capacity to be all these different places and all these different, and all these different stances. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, I have a number of things to say about the non-critic. Yes. But I'm I really, interested in I, this identity of the critic as well. But continue. Yes, yes. So this is so. There's that. There's that. That that idea that the critic is someone who goes to the text and finds the secret, hidden, real political meaning is like one one side of my verses. The other side of my verses is like okay, that's the like. And, and in that Jameson, in this maybe even not so super accurate depiction of Jameson, that is an example of an author who isn't necessarily aware of the politics that they're bringing to a text and isn't necessarily intentionally trying to illuminate some sort of tension, right? They're, they're just sort of like, I don't know, some sort of natural poet. Again, I may be really simplifying Jameson here. But, you know, you can totally this, – this speaks to larger trends in – in, in interpretation and in criticism when it mm-hmm. comes to art and literature. Another mm-hmm. thing, the other side of my verses, is a more active and self-conscious reader, player, writer, designer, like whatever. Um, I actually, so I have the, the anecdote that has made me, the, the experience that I've had recently um, that is making me think a lot about this is that when I was, I'm here in Berlin right now and I just last week 
went and saw a talk by two of the creators of Dream Daddy, which is really cool. I haven't even told Kyle or Terrell That's about this That's your favorite yet. game. <laughs> it was really cool. So <laughs> I, 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 uh, I was like, I had a chapter due the following day, and I was like, oh, God, should I stay at home and just write, or should I go to this talk? No, and I'm like 100% glad. Yeah, I'm so glad that I went and, and saw it. Um, it was at the, the Schwules Museum, which is the, the gay museum in Berlin. It's a, it's a really a fantastic space. If you're ever in Berlin, go to it. Um, I, I think the Rainbow Arcade exhibit will probably be, uh, I think it might actually already be gone. It was closing in May at some point. But it was really cool, and you'll be able to find traces of it online. In any case, what I was really struck by in that talk was just how unbelievably reflective and, like, totally engaged and, like, to a point of, like, absolute like pain and like the exacerbation and creation of mental illness within the designers just how painfully aware they were of the political stakes of the thing that they were making mm. right they were trying so desperately hard to get to like just realize this this queer game this gay game where dads date dads um and, and and like their whole talk was about how like dealing with the aftermath of their success and how they were they were just swimming in a sea of Twitter criticism that was it had the shitty you know gamer gators and alt right fools that are saying yeah this sucks this is gay this yeah. is dumb like but that's not the thing that really stuck with them what 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 really like like made the, kept them up at night and you know put them into these really bad depressive tailspins was just a like an inundation of criticism coming from what they called inside the house coming from the queer people that they were trying to make this game for mm. and it's it, it, you know, the question of like you know i'm not trying to say we should or should not give criticism to game designers that's not my point here but the point that i am trying to make is that they as creators are deeply engaged in the the transformative critical political angles of their own product and I'm wondering where metagaming falls on this. If metagames are this unconscious thing, um, do is it not a metagame when it's active? Is it? Are there? It, it seems to me. I think the charitable reading is that it's just both. Like there are both yeah. unconscious and conscious metagames. I was going to stop talking now. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> please jump in. I want to. I want to hear both of your thoughts. Oh no. Yeah. I mean. If, yeah. The, so that was that was a bit. Yeah. I, I think it's both. Right. That there is both conscious and unconscious metagaming. I, you know, I'm kind of sympathetic to the, you know, maybe our simplified redirection of Jameson that you know we're always kind of reflecting a political unconscious at some point. You know that we are always kind of acting out politics or even something that even if it's unconscious right um but i also think there's different uh levels right and so you can be acting out your politics unconsciously but you can also be acting out your politics consciously like these guys seem like they right. were trying to do right or um right. you know lots of manners of progressive games um or games that are trying to like make a point right um right yeah so i mean i would say both it seems to me that Play, the act of metagaming uh, via, you know, the consumer, customer, player, metagamer, whatever you want to call them, uh, a lot of times probably doesn't feel political, you know, or it doesn't feel like you're engaging in politics, but you kind of are. Um, and on, you know, the other side, quote unquote, there's so many scare quotes in this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> the other side of like the creator, you know, content creator, whatever, also metagamer, um, 
probably, you know, some of them are enacting politics. I don't think, like, the dudes at Treyarch or whatever are, like, thinking, you know, actively about politics. But they're still, you know, enacting a certain form of politics. So I think both, right? right? That's that's where I settle down. Yeah, fair. Terrell, I'm... I'm, I'm We're dying. What do you feel? We're dying to hear what, what you, you have to say. <laughs> Tell so me what, many you, what you think and feel. <laughs> um, so many things. Um, I guess... Maybe the quickest way for me in and out of this very, very deep, um, twice, thrice, self-entangled conundrum of a question um, is to maybe think about, you know, I would go so far as to say, yeah, I think Treyarch actually is concerned with politics. um, And necessarily so, because, I mean, well, I mean, you know, and it was something that kind of got caught, you know, you know, every now and then I'm listening to some podcasts and something kind of gets caught in my system and I'm just like, God, that was, why are we talking about this? Why is, why, why is this a fixation? And mm. I kind of wish I could just, and I wish I had taken the time to just kind of gotten Twitter to say, Hey, you seem really fixated on this. I think this is why that's a fixation. And maybe we should have a larger conversation about this, but it was about, um, uh, a comparison, um, that a number of podcasts were engaging between, um, Overwatch and Apex Legends, and they were talking about how Apex Legends has um, at least one, maybe two uh, characters that are not, um, that don't fall within the gender binary, right? That are um, um, not gender normative, um, in other words. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how exactly either of them identify, but... uh, Bloodhound is, like, explicitly trans. So, like, they're they. Right or right. non-binary, non-binary. I think is right. Non, there's def- yeah, non-binary, and I'm, I'm I want to say that there's some other, um, at least non-cis um, representation within Apex mm-hmm. Legends, and then there was talk about from Overwatch of doing the same thing, and there seemed to be a lot of energy around the notion that this is reactionary. Right, they are seeing that people are 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 excited to see that kind of representation and now the overwatch uh, designers are trying to capture are trying to, to tap into some of that and you know whether we want to you know start getting because i think that the, the thing that made me upset about that conversation was it got a little tinfoil hattie um mm-hmm. it's like oh they're looking over the corner and seeing that this is yeah. and now they're trying to like mm-hmm. you know pay off and you know it's it's a very cynical view and to say that it's a cynical view is not to say that it's incorrect. I, I would yeah. even go so far as to say, like, yeah, yeah it's, that's that's it's probably, probably about right. Probably correct. Yeah, could that, be. That, Could be. Yeah. That that sounds like a, a like what a, a company concerned about profit would do. Exactly. Right? They're responding <laughs> but, to consumer input, right? Right. And you know, it's it's funny because there's there's a kind of floating. You know, there's a there's a book floating around, um, or at least an essay, I should say, floating around the the converse, This question that you're posing. Uh, uh, Derek, which is, um, you know, Eve Sedgwick's paranoid versus reparative reading in which she quotes, um, a very famous, um, HIV AIDS activist, Cindy Patton on her response to the whole idea that HIV AIDS is a government conspiracy. And the, you know, the short of her answer is, you know, I just can't really get behind that because even if we had the receipts that proved that it was true, what would it tell us that we didn't already know? And, yeah, you know, that's right. kind of my response to, to, to that particular question. But, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that I think it does tell us or what, you know, metagaming does reflect is that 
once designers begin to engage or once we can quantify or realize that, hey, representation is a metagame. Mm. right that like the active project of yeah and this is 90s multiculturalism um <laughs> you know college conversations about um diversity anytime you hear this diversity you know ah there's somebody in here who put some put some please inserted some tokens right they inserted some tokens and now they're trying to quote unquote insert some tokens yeah uh-huh. That uh-huh. just hit me off the top and I'm kind of proud of it. So I'm that was really I'm, good. Yeah. That's, I'm, a, that's I'm a pose. Amazing. I'm a pose that's on that amazing. one. But but <laughs> you know but you have to realize it's like, you know, it's a game now, right? It the game of diversity and the game of representation because and the fact that it has as its win state some kind of notion of justice, but then you know that similar to the win state of poker being having the best hand no, you don't really care about having the best hand. You don't really care about having uh, quad aces or whatever. You care about taking down that big pot, yeah. right? You don't mm-hmm. care about, you know, what your campus looks like. You care about the fact that people are now willing to pay tuition, that there's, you know, no nasty, um, you know, stigma or or bad press going on, and you know, mm-hmm. that would deter a student from wanting to, to, to come to your campus and paying that tuition money, right? Right, but the right. fact is, is that once the metagame becomes conscious, once it becomes something that you can put a label on and you can say, oh, here are the forms, here are the moves, this is, this is, this is the, this is the combination of victory, right? That's when you can start to say, I don't know if you're here for playing this game. I don't know if the vitality of the game matters for you because of the vitality of the game or the vitality of racial life on your campus, or if you care about, the way that that's a ticket to, you know, you making some profit, right? Like what is the ultimate, is it, is it the, the, the thriving of your, of your campus or the thriving of your, your bank account? Right. Right. And the fact that the cut of the, the conscious nature of the game can lead to that is that's why I'm a little like, huh? Right. Which is why, you know, the fact that a metagame can be unconscious that, you know, a bunch of people can start to play a game or engage. And I guess the the thing about Mm. game is, you know, we're getting a little Wittgenstein-y here. It's like, you know, it's game as, you know, I went to the store and bought Rage 2, but it's also game as in a language game, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The fact that we're always sort of plugged in, that we're, we've always already inserted the quarters and we're always playing a game means that there's always, you know, strategies or things that we go to unconsciously and that eventually those become the basis for communities and so on and so forth. There's yeah. something about the organic nature of those that I think is important, right? And... I guess the question becomes, you know, because I think it's another weird thing about your question is, are we conflating organic with unconscious? Mm. Mm. Okay. Think, yeah, Say that's, more. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so, for example, right. Um, ugh, this is actually a really bad example, but um, <laughs> I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, you know, there are. I guess the best thing that's coming to my mind right now is um, the culture of slave songs and the culture of um, slaves on the plantation and the way that they have a number of songs that end up having certain roles or doing certain things that 
will often constitute a sort of circle of life um, within the slave quarters, right? And mm-hmm. that's why the quote within the circle comes up, because now there's this notion of being a part of what's going on in there. And if you're in it, you understand it. But if you're not in it, you don't understand it. Or the various ways in which slave songs, I mean, the famous example that I think most people know, myself included, from a Fresh Prince episode, Wade in the Water, <laughs> right? You know, where it's like, yeah. yes, you know, it's this song about, you know, God's going to trouble the water, wade in it, but it's also a way of like saying, use the water as a way to freedom, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, there was some tactical things going on there. There was like a way of kind of gaming it, but it also... You know, it's it's not it's not cheap, right? If you ask somebody, well, which is it? Is it about God and your relationship to it, or is it about you know spreading a message of of, of freedom? There's a part of me that yeah. would say it, it's it's both. Mm-hmm. It does both of those things that um, forming ways of understanding and forming ways of being, or generating form as a as a modicum of culture as a way of understanding yourself and and warding off you know, the meaninglessness of life, which I think is another way of thinking about metagaming, right? You know, you're trying to find a way to approach a game. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's as much about trying to make sure you have enough, you know, a high score or enough money in your bank account or, you know, a way of interacting with others as it is about, you know, the feeling of engaging with the game in the first place. That, um, that there are ways in which those two things can be set against each other, but it's not necessary. And that a, an expansive vitality of both the game and your bank account. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, that's well said. I think, I think that's right. And that kind of, I re- first off, love the organic versus uh, unconscious like yeah, me thing. Too. That's a really like fruitful uh, conceptual distinction. Distinction, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, yeah, that this it's connecting the connections with capitalism, but also like the world that capitalism has created, right? Where like the monetization of games and life, right, as a whole, mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. uh, is not only like important but fundamental to how like the rest of the world is understood, right? Uh, in like monetized terms. Damn. Can I, this is good. Can I offer? I, I've a, never expected okay. such a good answer from from my question. That was that was that was excellent. Well, um, take excuse away. me, Derek. <laughs> no, it, ex- that was, I, that a was really the hard probably slam least, against Terrell and was, I. Yeah, that was a really shitty thing to say. I apologize. It didn't come See, like, out right. I mostly expected them to like talk about dumb stuff for thirty seconds, and then I would provide the answer. And, uh... It's more like a, I received riches. Man. I hit a jackpot, and yeah, I didn't know dude. I was going to. You, go you to didn't Germany think your one like quarter year. was going to get you that much money in return. <laughs> That's <laughs> you, right. Exactly. Your version of Let's the metagame didn't, didn't see a jackpot this early. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. You go to Germany for a year, you become this like elitist, arrogant guy. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, um, Europe, it is <laughs> wonderful. Anyway, uh, could I maybe offer a potential transition that's Please related? Because um, this is just kind of maybe uh, if... I can suggest a kind of good way to transition to talking about um, our own kind of systems of metagaming. Yes. Uh, and just kind of a final point from Bullock and Lemieux that really touches on a lot of stuff that you were talking about, Terrell, which is uh, what comes from their sixth and final chapter and shortest chapter. Um, and I just, I really just want to say the words magic, uh, magic circle jerk on our <laughs> podcast and it's ex- important that explain that what so that is. So can I ask a question? <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what's up? 
Terrell got shut down. <laughs> it was super effective. <laughs> Terrell was knocked out. Derek Who's next revive. podcaster? <laughs> <laughs> Derek used revive on Terrell. Yeah. Ph- Phoenix Day. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, shit. I, I, we can totally cut this out, but do they really call it magic? Is it really magic circle jerking? Yeah. Or is it magic circle jerks? No, magic the circle is like, jerks. It, it's like the magic circle jerk. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like the and singular noun. I will explain that presently. Uh, <laughs> You're going to explain what a circle. Mm. <laughs> no, I mean, we all understand. Okay. So, Hoisinga, however you pronounce his name, um, you know, very influential scholar, right, who talked about what play is. He put forth this idea that there's a thing called a magic circle, which is play exists in the magic circle so like my mind immediately goes to like you're at recess you're out on the playground and like you know the basketball court is like the play area right and so all the games and the you know hopscotch and basketball and dodgeball and kickball like everything happening on that court is kind of separated from the outside world right like there are rules and uh, systems that are guiding how that play is and it exists separately from the world is that a fair definition that's good. That's great. Okay. Cool. I was like, I really hope I'm not getting this super wrong. Perfect. No, it's great. Um, it's great. And uh, Bullock and Lemieux kind of lay out um, what they call the magic circle jerk, which is that pretty much every <laughs> game scholar who writes about the magic circle points out all of its flaws, right? That like, oh, well, you know, they're still connected to the outside world. The magic circle is a myth. The magic circle is problematic. Like all these things. And yeah, they're right. It's wrong. But they're like, <laughs> everyone knows it's wrong. The only thing that's more annoying than the magic circle as a concept is the, like, discussion about the magic circle as a concept, right? So they're basically like, let's stop writing about it, and they call it the magic circle jerk. Um, but as what I think yeah, – hashtag owned. Um, <laughs> what I really like is then they, then they kind of go into a discussion of Anita Sarkeesian, you know, famous uh, social critic, uh, games critic, you know, woman who received a lot of – uh, I was gonna say like antagonism, but I think like you know outright harassment, harassment right? Word. Death threats, um, doxing, awful stuff for you know positing the idea that perhaps there was you know toxicity in gaming culture. Um, shockingly, uh, where they say that you know there was a lot of critiques of Anita Sarkeesian uh, harassment of Anita Sarkeesian based in, solely in misogyny, right? Like. Like, as we just said, death threats, you know, rape threats, all these horrible things that were targeted to her because she was a woman. But there was also this other brand of criticism, a lot of which was probably mobilized by similar groups of people, like gamer, gaydy, alt-right type people, but saying things like, hey, this is, like, just a game, you know? Like, this is a game, and it doesn't really reflect on anything, and um, she doesn't even play games. Like, all these, like, you know, maybe not as horrible things, but drawing from similar wells of criticism, right? That there's a there are certain types of people who are allowed to play games and certain types of people who aren't allowed to play games. And basically what they kind of conclude is that those people desperately want to believe in the magic circle, right? They want to believe that video games exist outside of society, outside of culture. They're just, you know, things you play in your free time and they don't have politics and they don't have, you know, they don't have a like, you know, um, politics. I think that's the right word. And yeah. so, whereas, you know, the magic circle as a concept is, you know, not super useful or bankrupt, uh, you know, theoretically, it still has a lot of power in the way that uh, people understand games in our modern society. 
And so while we don't need to criticize it as a concept, we can trace how its power works as a rhetorical right. device, like rhetorically, how its power is you know valuable for certain groups of people. Um, oh, I'll just modify what I said before. Borders and the magic circle are fake, but yep. they still have power. That's exactly right. And we right. need to recognize that. Yep. Yeah. And so someone oh. like Anita Sarkeesian is the like quote unquote feminist killjoy, which is a trope that I think Anita Sarkeesian actually talks about. Uh, who's like, say, how, people are saying, how dare you like point out that the magic circle isn't real, right? It's it's <laughs> it's Huizinga's spoil sport, which is like right. it's different from the cheat, you know, because the cheater is at least recognizing like, okay, this is a game and I accept the terms. I'm just going to cheat in it. The spoil sport is like, this isn't a game, you know? Like, I refuse to right. recognize the rules that you've set up. And they, the spoil sport gets more hate than the cheat, right? Even though right. the cheater's cheating, the spoil sport is just not participating. Um, anyway, I thought that might be a good yeah. kind of way to transition to in our own kind of systems of gaming and our own kind of games yeah. that we play, how we have gone about uh, metagaming things organically or unconsciously or consciously um, and the kind of power that those um, borders of the game and the breaking down of those borders has still in our lives. Hell yeah. Nice can I? That was good. Can I, <laughs> can I, can I, can I, can, can you know, great, Terrell. great baton pass, Kyle. You just, Thanks. you just ran. Yep. The, the anchor leg, you killed you it. it. They're like 100, 100 yards behind you. I'm going to keep using sports and game metaphors for the rest of the podcast. Um, <laughs> since you just ran the lap, and now because we're playing podcasts and it's got its own game, almost like Calvin Ball, uh, can you pass me? Pass, yep. Hit me, hit me, hit me. I'm open. You got it. I'm open. You got trail. Ready, ready? I'm going to shoot the three and miss it. <laughs> and miss Whoa, it. We, are, we are mixing our metaphors, <laughs> but I am into it. <laughs> um. So, you know, something that just occurred to me, I guess this is like a, a post-2010, maybe even mid-aughts gaming convention that began, and um, I think people are starting to get a little tired of it, and a lot of games are breaking with it, but it's the, um, I forget the exact, exact uh, name for it, but the good-bad meter, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. Thinking about mm -hmm. Mass Effect in terms of the uh, oh, sure. Paragon oh. versus Renegade. Yeah. Right. Um, or even a game for the PS3 that was, or a series of games, um, the infamous games where, yeah. you know, go full good and you get these set of powers, go full like morality, bad and you get this set of powers. Like morality, right, the morality. or something. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the way that it, it, it went from just sort of like um, story trimmings to actually having a kind of mechanical and yeah. de detailed mechanical kind of set of implications like you know you get these types of tools or these types of consequences for these choices and both of them being tantalizing good and it's just a matter of if you decide you go down the good route you have to go fully down the good route yeah. um if you decide to go bad you fully down the bad route um whenever i play a game uh i always i have to be good like <laughs> okay. and i just it's just it's just a decision i mean and with yeah. the infamous and series yeah, I mean, with the Infamous series, I always started um, going good, and then it's like, okay, well, let's go back to the other game, yeah. let's go through the game again, be bad, and see whatever. And the thing about it is that eventually the games have started to realize that, you know, we can make it, maybe make it a little cleaner, make it a little fuzzier, it's like, maybe there's actually, maybe bad could be right, right? Um, and sort of yeah. playing with some of those those details in various ways. Yeah. Um My but one of the things that, that, you know, to this day I've never done, and I feel like I'm kind of, like, displaying an Achilles heel here, like, 
one of these days someone's <laughs> gonna hold you know something near and dear to me hostage and you know say do this or they die and i'm like mm. <laughs> yeah but i've never played the original bioshock and i've never harvested a little sister. <laughs> i've never i've just i've just oh. it's it's like can't make can't do myself that. do it and that's why the version of that game that a number of critics have mentioned would have been the better version is if Saving Little Sisters ultimately gave you less Adam and it of would course. have been harder to play that way. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. Like, that would have been like, all right, you know, I want to save as many as I can. Right. But, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. Um, but I guess it's just making me realize that, like, you know, insofar as there's, like, a game there, right? Like... Are you good? Are you with Tannenbaum or are you with Atlas, hmm. right? Like, there's almost a part of me that's like, you know what? I don't want to kill big daddies for this, right? right. I don't want to get caught between, you know, your bigger fight with this. I'm just trying to get out alive. By the way, this whole, like, biological mutation thing requires sticking a whole bunch of syringes in my arms. I'm not really cool with any of it. Tell you what, these little sisters are going to save these big daddies I'm not messing with either of you and just play the game as like non non steroided up loser mm. from the beginning. Yeah. It would be hard as all get out. But right. in my opinion, it's almost like that's like to a certain degree, that's probably the most ethical decision of all because it's like, look, this is a lot of politics going on here <laughs> and I don't want any of it. <laughs> See, Terrell, you right. just have to learn to separate your brain and, you know, just uh, act as, like, a sociopath in a video game <laughs> and not as, like, the good moral upstanding human See, that you are. See, I'm cool being a sociopath in the video game, but I at least have to believe, like, I'm a sociopath for a reason. Like, I will... <laughs> a principle. I have principles. Right. Yeah. Like, I will beat the Joker in the head all day, every day, but I at least need to have that cape that makes me feel like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He My, deserved it. Well, so, so this, this, Terrell, this actually links up a lot with a point that I wanted to make sure I got in here, which is that, like, what uh, maybe one way to think about what you're experiencing when you do Bioshock is that when you're playing Bioshock and you're like, oh, like, I don't want to be in this position. Like, there's a lot of things I wish I didn't have to do. Um, I wonder if it might be productive for us to think about certain, certain elements of games as metagames themselves or like ways that incline us towards certain kinds of metagames um i think they i think bollock and lemieux trouble this uh, eventually in the text you don't have it's 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 either extremely hard to do or you don't easily have the option of playing bioshock without killing big daddies or uh, uh, uh or using needles or or you don't want to harvest the children or something like that the game suggests metagames to you mm. in the in its mechanics, yeah. like that. There, there's a, and this is where, I, like, I don't know how this necessarily fits with Bollock and Lemieux, where it seems like for them, the game, like the game, is this code. It's this code. It's computation. It's 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 uh, it's rationalization. It's calculation. Um, it's very. It's sort of deterministic and doesn't give a shit about what human beings want to do it wants to treat humans as sort of passively yeah whereas like you don't have to like you could try and beat that game in the way that you want to do it but the game itself is inclining you towards a certain kind of metagame yes or like a a set of pathways 
Yeah. Because it's not necessarily only one. I mean, right, because, you know, Bioshock and games like Infamous and, like, you know, the first Knights of the Old Republic and I have the second one, too. Most Bioware games, actually. You know, they have um, <laughs> literally every Bioware game. They have, you know, that simple morality code and that you do have choices within there, but it is a set of choices, right? A, like, you know, smaller, narrower set of choices than, like, the more expensive you know, metagames. But that's actually I'm here an for interesting what you're saying, piece Derek. in and of itself is because, like, I'll be honest, originally playing Mass Effect was really, really hard. Until I realized, oh, the top decision's always the Paragon decision, and then the bottom decision is the Renegade decision. Because yeah. I was like looking through them, and I'm like, huh, those are interesting responses. I'm not sure I really agree with either of them. That one sounds the best. And then what would come out of her mouth was always something like, whoa, that's way more charged than I wanted that to be. And I realized, <laughs> yeah, like, in a oh. Hot. Because yeah. I either have the opportunity to, like, hand the person an apple or shoot them in the face. That's, like, yes. the only two things right. I can technically do. And yeah. it's just a matter of degrees as to, like, to what degree does she blow their brains out? Or to what degree does she give them, like, a wedding cake or a, pe- or a piece of fruit? Yeah. Right. Can I? And so, yeah, go ahead, so, Kyle. Sorry, yeah. it's just right on what you were saying, Trill. Um, my favorite go. example of this is from Infamous, um, where, like the morality choices were like cartoonish at most points right so like oh yeah you know the i think the traditional model i think established by at least for me i would say like kotor like the first bioware games you know mm-hmm. um nice old republic uh is that like you that know bad right. so good right like going bad dark side evil or whatever provides you like short-term benefits um but like maybe long-term corruption and, like, good, like, you know, withholds rewards and gives you long-term rewards but not short and short-term challenges. Which, like, is based on a kind of weird Judeo-Christian theology that we're not going to get into. But um, my favorite one in uh, Infamous is, you know, up until a certain point, it's like, yeah, like, you know, do you want to kind of harvest this person? And, like, ooh, like, it's going to give you, be- like, bonuses and you can kind of see a reason for it. And then you get to a point where it's like, hey, there's a bunch of kids in a school bus um do you want to just murder them or save them (laughs) and i was like wait like what do i gain from murdering them and they're like i don't know you're like you're evil so (laughs) you just murder like 80 kids and i was like wait (laughs) up until now you've given me like logical reasons to like ooh, like i'm weak and i need to like get more electricity or whatever you know from this person like harvest their energy or to you know do these things or whatever and it's like or you just want to freaking kill these kids (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I don't know. Evil people do that stuff, right? Um, I mean, Something yeah, happened funny. along the way here. <laughs> because in, in the second Infamous game, there's this moment where, um, and this is, like, really cartoony, but there's this moment where you have the ability to sort of fuse with another, um, like, mutant conduit yes. person and gain their powers. And then you get to use one of their superpowers. And then there's one who's supposed to be the good one who has ice powers. And that means that, you know, when you're running up a bunch of enemies, you can just, like, shoot out a wave of ice and they all freeze. And it's like, oh, wow, it's past, it's you know, peaceful and so on and so forth. Except they probably get frostbite and so on and so forth. Like, you know, if you push the <laughs> reasoning far enough. But then the other power is, like, yeah, you walk into the middle of the street and you just absorb <laughs> the bodies <laughs> of yeah. random passerbys. Yeah. Like, like they cool. dissolve and just become energy for you. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it trended and, to the cartoonish. <laughs> and and so uh, it's it's interesting. I've never actually played Infamous. I I've uh, I mean I played Bioshock games, but like the sort of genre of games that 
that had that binary system. I don't. I've just never. I've never actually played. I own, but have never played Mass Effect and that kind of stuff. I don't know why it's never what? clicked for me. You never played yeah, Mass I've Effect. Never actually played it before. Yeah, I've never played a single Mass Effect. Wow. Yeah. I have. I have always been attracted to, and this is a transition. Um, <laughs> games like two games that Kyle and I sort of made some meta games and videos out of. And uh, uh, yeah, we well, got to plug our shit, right? So, like, first we, off, <laughs> one, if you're more interested in t- hearing about Bioshock, go listen to episode one, whatever it was called, of Scars <laughs> at Play. To episode one. It now. was pretty good. It was pretty well planned out. Narrative uh, and gameplay. That sounds good. Uh, two. Yeah. If you want to listen to me and Derek be dummies and Derek beat my <laughs> beat my ass at a bunch of stuff and like just crush me at every video game, go to our YouTube channel. Continue, Derek. Like and subscribe. Smash that like button. Like, All right. Like and subscribe. Smash the like button. I'm done. Kyle getting crushed. It's Derek's turn um, now. <laughs> well, so what I the the. The thing that that links up to what that the the bio maybe the Bioware model of like very clearly delineated choice paths, where that's something that maybe is something I don't know if we want to say this or not. Maybe that follows more the logic of a game and, and, and calculation. But I, I don't want to create you know uh, Balak and Lemieux wouldn't approve of such strict binaries. But um, something like a game called Heat Signature, which I talked about last time we on our last What's in Your System. Or a game like Faster FTL Faster Than Light, or the new 2016 Hitman game, where I think especially with Hitman and with Heat Signature, there's this certain sense in which you are dropped into a space. You have a certain amount of tools, and you have maybe a goal or two, but then it's really like totally up to you about how you complete that goal. Although certain it's, metas are suggested, right? Like, right, exactly. Are, right, right. Suggested pathways. Yes, exactly. Um, but ultimately, like you are free to play it, so to speak, in any kind of way you want. I've always found those games to be more amenable to quote unquote meta games. And when yeah. we started initially, or I, at least when I was doing this, when I was like, "Hey, would it be cool if we did videos?" I like tried to think about, okay, I don't really want to just make videos of us playing a game with no other idea or <laughs> concept in there. Cause I just, like, I felt like, like, uh, you know, I, I think the people that make successful online videos always have a little angle or a little extra thing they're doing when they play the game. Um, and, and it, it was these games like FTL, like Hitman, like Heat Signature, games that I knew well, but also games that had a lot of space that seemed to me to have enough space for me to make my own meta games. Mm. Um, and that was sort of what drew us, at least me initially, and then I think us uh, eventually together, into figuring out how to make, how to take a game and, and make a meta game of, of both performance and production out of like you know with the goal of producing a video basically um which sounds instrumentalizing but ultimately in my experience with making those videos it didn't really feel that way like it felt like really fun and satisfying and active to be giving ourselves rules and also performing in the video with playing off of each other all of that felt very much uh creative in the way that they that Bollock and Lemieux often describe yeah. 
metagaming. And I, you know, it, it was completely performative that I lost in every uh, thing we played. That is important to know. Um, <laughs> That's right. Well, we were trying to create this underdog story. That yeah, we're, we're really trying to build this narrative. Um, no, I, to- I totally agree, Derek. And I think like uh, a big part of that, of course, is like the social aspect, right? I mean, we all grew up playing right. video games. Why would we make a freaking entire podcast about video games if this wasn't something that we were like deeply into, right? And so I think yeah. the addition of like a social aspect in this kind of meta gaming of something like Heat Signature or FTL or Hitman uh, was, at least for me, more representative of like how I understood video games growing up, right? As like mm. something I did by myself, but also like I have a brother that I played video games with a lot. I had friends who I played video games with a lot. I had like two friends. I only ever really have two friends at a time. Anyway, I'm happy to be. So- <laughs> Trying so to I'm, figure out if I'm in one of those. If slots I make right a new now, friend, hope. I'm gonna have to kill one of you guys. Oh, <laughs> so, shit. Um, <laughs> we gotta get to so, recording. We gotta crank up a backlog. Yeah, so I'm just gonna break the pool queue in half and toss it to you guys. Anyway, um, <laughs> so Today we're gonna like, have tryouts. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know, like that level of metagaming, like introducing social aspects of like c- competition and you know. <laughs> guessing French philosophy quotes and stuff like that um, was right. maybe I didn't do that when I was 12, but it was like right. a, a very familiar style of metagaming to me. Yes. Kyle, I have a question for you. Yeah. Did you, so I, I guess, I guess one is one's let's start with a more broader sort of theoretical one. Do you feel like our quote unquote metagaming, what we're calling metagaming right now, do you feel like we were, doing a, was, do you feel like it was a critical or transformative or is what we were doing with those videos <laughs> the kind of thing that metagaming is supposed to do in the way that Bollock and Lemieux mm. describe it I could I might say yeah actually <laughs> if that sounds I'm, like I, I, I don't know I'm open to like I have thoughts on both sides that like yeah. yes and no my but, so my first take my first spicy take when when you said that was that by adding a layer to a game right which is essentially what we were doing right was adding another layer of gaming to a game i don't know why i said that's so weird um like another (laughs) layer of gaming to a game um that kind of calls it into question or it draws it shines a light on the fact that like look at there are rules built into this game right like Mm -hmm. it's a you know piece of software that like has certain rules because of like coding and coding language and stuff and so by like adding a layer of uh, social kind of meta gaming to that original thing i think shows like hey look you know in hitman there are certain ways you can move and act and like the kind of silly stuff that we did that you know poked fun at that shows like hey look this is part of the game right so yeah you know yeah at you know a basic level like you could i think you could call that transformative i don't think we were doing you know (laughs) world-changing stuff you know no no um, but that you know and i don't think metagaming has to be exactly that right? i think it was kind of questioning right. assumed terms something like that you're questioning kind of like assumptions we have about games which are like yeah you play a game and you know you try to beat the mission and you win the thing and we're saying like yeah yeah yeah, sure but also you have to do this other mission that we've created right and it kind of throws into question like oh like what is the purpose of a mission what is winning this game look like you know what is yeah. what is the win state? What is progress in this game? Um, yeah. Redefining that with our own sort of changing the end dumb states, changing stuff. our goals with dumb shit. With our but own dumb, dumb shit. Dumb shit. Is, <laughs> with our own, it's it's dumb shit, but it's ours. It's so our dumb shit. We made it up. And please watch it. We need YouTube money. 
<laughs> yeah, I, the, not need uh, all I, the money. I want that YouTube money. I don't. Th- I don't think we're we we. Well, yeah, yeah, we're totally raking it in, and just go ahead and <laughs> let me do an ad read from the company that's yep. totally sponsoring us. Thanks and, for uh, liking and subscribing. Thanks for that gold. <laughs> Terrell, um, would you, do, when you think about the concept of metagaming, do you feel like it describes some sort of play or like way of playing that you have engaged in? Whether whether it was like when you were younger or or a way you've intentionally engaged with a game. Um. So there's one example of um, metagaming that I think is, I think it's just a kind of consequence of. Well, if I'm being honest, sometimes it's a consequence of being broke. Um, and sometimes <laughs> it's a consequence of being broke or just like having a niche of game that you really enjoy and there not being too much beyond it that you're willing to like waste time breaking your typical go-to routines to adjust to. And yeah. I say that because I just have this very clear memory of sitting in a friend's house after school. Um, and this is just was a thing that we did. And it was, this was like 2003, maybe 2004, and he had a Sega Dreamcast. And if you know anything about how the Sega Dreamcast played out, if you were playing a Sega Dreamcast in 2003, it was like, yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it was it was, it was was a far far uh, cry from its debut when it was like, holy shit, this is exactly, amazing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and he loved playing um, NFL 2K, um, which is what, was on the Dreamcast, no Madden. Um, and he had, I think, a, a copy of NFL K21. And he had just played the game enough and understood how the game worked enough such that he would just play a random game and, you know, would have a play where he'd get to, to the, you know, the end zone and then would run along the end zone and just watch as, like, mm-hmm. a whole defensive squad couldn't tackle him. <laughs> Uh-huh. Like, just running back and forth. That was just sort of, like, a thing he did. And it was, like, I guess it just sort of opened up the sort of notion of metagaming where it's, like, yeah, I figured out the game to a point where if I just hop in the game and it's, like, all right, go win, that's not challenging enough. So, instead, I right. have to, like, blindfold myself or, like, tie a hand behind my back to, like, make the game a little bit more interesting. And, interestingly enough, it kind of breaks down the game and sort of introduces some more pieces um, and I suppose, like, the famous example for me, again, you know, just because uh, when I'm sitting in bed and have literally nothing else to do, I just pick up the, you know, I pick up the 3DS and I go strictly to the Pokemon trading card game. Um, Get it. And the way that the trading card game works, and this is the way I think most card games work, it, this isn't the way that Hearthstone works for a variety of reasons, but the typical way that you can win is the typical, you know, you can defeat the other team, you know, your opponent. They don't have any cards to play. They ran out of HP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or there's some type of weird representation. And because in Pokemon, you can only have six Pokemon at a time. There's like a prize system. And if you pick up six prizes for every Pokemon that you've defeated, uh, you've won the game. So, you know, you defeat six of your opponent's Pokemon. That was the equivalent of defeating the six that they can carry around anytime. So on and so forth. And then the, the, the card game trope of, if you draw every card in your deck and you get to a point where you're supposed to draw a card because you draw a card every turn um, and there's no card to draw, that's a loss. So there's all types of like stall tactics where it's like, I'm not even going to focus on trying to defeat all your Pokemon. I'm just going to make sure that I've got more cards in my deck than you and make sure that you have burn. Right. 
Exactly. Burn through your cards. Mm. What's that called? That's called milling. Milling, right? Um, I think maybe, but typically they call it stalling because really what it's about is, you know, because that's why there are a number of, like, cards in the trading card um, base system where I think, like, Chansey's got, like, 120 hit points. So throw out a Chansey and just have it be a wall and suck up damage. Mm. And sometimes the, the point of that is to develop, like, if you've got, like, a magic card, you're not, you don't want to go out with that. You want to wait till you can evolve it to, like, Gyarados, and then it really can, like, mess some stuff up. Um, sometimes it's about just giving yourself time to develop, like, all right, yeah, now I've got the real heavy hitters. Now I'm going to steamroll you. Other times it's like, no, here's a wall. By the way, I have a bunch of super potions. I also have ways of transferring damage to other Pokemon and then healing everybody all at once. I'm just going to wait you out until mm-hmm. so on and so mm-hmm. forth, right? And so the game of the, the meta game that I've sort of invented to play with the trading card game is always win by two. So hmm. either have wiped out my opponent's Pokemon and have driven out, drove, have drawn more prize cards than they have, or have done one of those two things and have a significant amount more cards than they do in my deck, or get it to the point where it's like, wow, you've got one Pokemon left. You're not going to beat me. And you just, you just, you know, decked yourself. You don't have a card to draw. So you have zero cards in your deck. I've got a couple cards in my deck and I have more prizes, so on and so forth. So that makes it tricky because there are a number of things that like are just sort of standard tricks or standard things of the Pokemon trading card game. For example, playing Professor Oak, which requires that you discard your hand and then draw seven fresh cards, right? Which is really cool because it's like, all right, seven fresh cards. I can do something with this. It's often cool where if you, if you play all the cards in your hand and you only have like two cards and they're useless, right? play you know professor oak you get rid of two useless cards and you got seven fresh cards but Mm -hmm. you can have up to four professor oaks in your deck and if you play each of them that's 28 cards of a 60 card deck Mm -hmm. so now you've got to start being like okay i could Mm -hmm. use a little bit of a boost here maybe get some evolutions going or i can hold back and make sure that i have more cards than you so it really requires a more conservative style of play so on and so forth so Mixing and matching with that and trying to think about, all right, you know, because I have decks where it's like, yeah, I can beat this guy, you know, in like five or six turns, but I will have like 10 cards left in my deck and I'll have 40. Uh, Or it's like, okay, how do I pace myself so I can keep up with this dude, beat him still, but then also have more decks of cards in his deck. And it's significantly more challenging and it adds to the longevity of the game, which is kind of what I think um, some forms of metagaming are about. It's like... Let me add yes. an extra difficulty setting and mm-hmm. get more out of this game because yeah. it was really only supposed to last like a year or two years. <laughs> right. But Terrell will play it forever. <laughs> yeah. Two but I, I, decades I, I, later. <laughs> exactly. I, I love that. I love that anecdote because I, I recognize it in my own play with like a lot of different games. Like I, I remember I played The Binding of Isaac far too long because I was just mm. like, mm, I'm not trying to buy more games right now. Like, <laughs> I, I'm just like, I'll just play this one again yep, for the 2,000th time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and, and I, I love that also it seems like the Pokemon trading card game, the way you play it, it's like a single player game. You're playing against a computer and mm-hmm. yet you are developing this own meta in your head of like different strategies for approaching this thing mm-hmm. in ways that, 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 that like, Oh, there's like, I, I'm seeing all of the different possibilities of how I can combine the elements that I have to like, right. to, to, to challenge myself and to still be able to win. And I, that, that, that 
that's kind of cool. That's a yeah. little. You know, and it's that's... interesting. I didn't think about that because typically that if I <laughs> if I were nine, <laughs> yeah, I would have other nine year olds. This is assuming that I have friends. Um, nine, <laughs> nine was a rough year um, to play the game against. Playing with other people because there's certain strategies that I've developed, and it's clear that at a certain point in time when I start running these strategies, the game is like, what? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. doesn't realize that I'm, like, screwing with it on a level that the code just doesn't, like... Like, I mean, you know, when I start messing around and, like, shifting the damage it's giving to me back to it, it's like, oh. And then playing with damage, you know, on its various weapons, it's like, okay, this guy's about to get knocked out, but if I shift the damage from him to something else... But then the game never realizes it's like, yeah, I'm playing chicken with you and killing like, mm. you know, other Pokemon other than the one that you've got <laughs> active. And, but, the, right. but the game realized already like, oh, this active Pokemon's about to die. Let me not invest resources in it. But it's like, doesn't matter. I'm going to keep this thing that's about to die out here for as long as possible. And then the game mm. never realizes like, oh, well, if it's doing that, maybe I should like attack with it. So, mm. so you, now you're not attacking me, but I'm slowly like siphoning off everything else. But because there's not, like, a person who realizes, wait, that's what's happening, let me either right. build a deck or build a strategy or a tactic to, like, engage out of it. Like, mm-hmm. I've got to I've gotta be, I've got to, I've got to hamper myself because there's not a, an opponent to hamper me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this is what I mean about, like, games having metagame elements in them is, like, you they're like the ai in that instance is like a tool that you're using and incorporating into the way that you play yeah. as like a like a you, you can rely on it you know it so well that you know it's going to do certain kinds of things and you can you can create new forms of play based around your knowledge of that ai yeah. and that's sort of like a a a, a, prac, a a form of of play that's like only comes with the knowledge and the history and all of the playing that you've done all the time you've spent with it already. And that I think fits perfectly with the idea of, of, of metagaming that, that, that Bollock and can, Lemieux are trying to develop. Can I hop in with another example? Please do. If, if just what you're saying right now, not, not to, you know, move away from Pokemon, uh, Terrell, but please do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, y'all, I cannot stop playing divinity original sin Two. It's it's so freaking good. I think I've talked about it on our last three podcasts. <laughs> um, you go for a, a run on it. Yeah, I'm at. Well, let's wait. Let's do the little uh, little in. Uh, yeah, I'm at 381 hours right now. Oh so <laughs> it's good, guys. Time out. Um, 381 hours. When did that game drop? Uh, let's see. I can probably find that out too. <laughs> last played today. <laughs> um, I feel like it's it's been out for a little while. Yeah, a couple years, I think. Um, September 14th, 2017. So, a year and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, and so... Still, plenty yeah. of time. Yes, everyone should play Divinity Original Sin 2. I will... <laughs> I'm going to die on this hill. I think it's one of the greatest games ever invented, uh, ever made. Um, it's in my top five games ever. Uh, anyway, so... <laughs> Divinity Original Sin 2, which I'm going to start calling Divinity 2 for simplicity's sake, um, is, like, crazy complex. Like, the, like, campaign takes, like, 80 hours to beat. Um, I've done it, like, four or five times, as you can tell from my (laughs) uh, hours played. And the thing that I find so fascinating about it, and which really, like, I've been thinking a lot about in terms of, like, is this metagaming or not? And it really kind of fits into what we're talking about right now, is, like, 
it, the game gives you so many like tools that are just crazy and game breaking. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they give you so many tools and abilities that like can so easily lead to insanity happening. So like mm-hmm. you can get teleport skills really easily where you either teleport yourself or other stuff. You get abilities that can switch you and another player or another items positions. You could like throw a rock and then switch places with that rock or something like that. Oh shit. That's um, cool. Yeah. Uh, th- so many other things there's things called death fog so there's a thing called death fog that unless you're undead like a skeleton uh Uh death fog immediately kills you no matter what you are including every boss in the game so if you get (laughs) like a a barrel of death fog which exists at certain points and you're an undead character you can just bring it in your pack walk up to the boss of the game be like what's up crack the barrel he immediately dies and you get all the xp oh my god (laughs) but like the, the the death fog barrels are at the beginning of the game, and the game creators were like, oh, they won't know what these are yet. And, like, but if you do know and you pick them up, you can kill everyone. Um, oh, my God. There's, like... That's so funny. It's a turn-based combat system, but uh, it's, like, an RPG, like, an isometric RPG. And it's turn-based combat. But if you're not in the combat, you can attack outside of the combat order. <laughs> so, like... Well, you, if you're playing and you oh. ha- you can just engage one guys in combat and then sneak around with the rest of your party and just mark them from behind and it's totally acceptable. <laughs> um, and so I'm thinking about things like particularly this Death Fog Barrel. So there's this guy named Bishop Alexander. He's the fucking worst. And if you've played the game, you know what I'm talking about. He's terrible. Um, and he's like kind of your the first serious boss in the game. And it's this huge fight against him, and he's, like, being built up as this enemy for a really long time. And the first time I fought him was, like, this big epic fight. And the second time I fought him, I was playing as an undead character, and I literally just dropped a death fog barrel on him, and I killed him. In a second, you know? Insta-kill. Insta-instant kill, right? You immediately get the XP, you go on to the next level, it's, like, great. And I was like, is that metagaming? Like, what I did, you know? Like, <laughs> I, I used tools yeah, that yeah, are in yeah. this game, right? Like, I used the tools of this game... Um, the crazy, insane, game-breaking tools that this game provided to me to right. essentially, like, short-circuit what was supposed to be this, like, big narrative moment, you know? Um, yeah. Instead, to just drop a bunch of death fog on them. Or there's another right. example where, like, there's this really strong boss um, who you have to, like, is, like, you can weaken her through, like, a variety of ways, or if you get, like, just real beast mode, you can just kill her. Um, but because the game gives you teleports... You can, working as a team, if you have friends, uh, which I do, um, I have two, <laughs> um, they, Brag. <laughs> uh, you can, like, team teleport this boss away from all of her minions and to another part of the map where there's, like, a super, like, yoked ally that you have, and he just kills her in, like, a second. Oh, my God. You know? And you get all the XP at level, like, eight of killing, like, a level 20 enemy. Uh-huh. <laughs> And it's like, is this cheating? Yeah. Like, did I cheat? Is it metagaming? I don't know. Yeah. I think for I think for Bollock and the Mew, it's not cheating. Yeah. I think that, um, I don't know. Because I mean, it's, it's using tools intentionally provided in the game. Right. Right. Um, so you're not, it's not kind of something existing, quote unquote, outside of the game that you're like bringing in these kind of extra layers, you know? But it's... Right doing you know there's an assumption and maybe this is the normal style of metagaming there's an assumption when you play like an rpg that it's like yeah you know that bad guy that's been like 
that kidnapped your friend and torturing you, you're going to have this big climactic battle with him that is going to be, you know, have, like, plot and meaningful narrative, and you're not just going to drop a bottle of living death on him, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> that insta-kills him and makes it all, you know, pointless. Um, right. Or, like, before he gets to his, like, next power-up stage. Like, nope, just instantly kill them. Um, so that's, like, it's it's differing from the, like, quote-unquote normal meta of how we right. play a game. Um, and it's circumventing it, but using tools provided within the game itself, you know? Which I think the creators of the game, like, at some point kind of knew they were doing, right? They were like, we're going to give these players abilities that, like, are going to just mess it up so bad, you know? Like, they're going to, like, they're just going to be so bad and messing it up. Um, But, and, like, let's see what they do, you know? Like, let's see, like, give them that uh, ability for, like, you know, here's another term, emergent gameplay, right? Um, Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Um, A kind of philosopher who has this idea of the the good story bias, and he talks about it in terms of the ways that um, science fiction and apocalyptic fiction kind of prepares to think about doomsday scenarios in bad ways because they usually focus on it in terms of like what makes a good story not like something that actually is interesting or not necessarily interesting but like worthwhile to think about um Mm. or probable even um and it's it's interesting because like i'm I'm thinking about you know going up to the final boss with a bunch of uh what was the things in the barrel to call death death fog it's not a very subtle name <laughs> right. And I'm just thinking about like, you know, what if the end of um any Avengers movie ended <laughs> with, you know, and then Tony Stark just dropped a bunch of death fog. <laughs> yep, and killed him. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. On right, the dude. Right. And it's like, you know, it almost be like, you know, what if instead of like having this intense battle where or even the fact that like you know the the out of turn um battle sequences right like instead of having this intense battle with all however many avengers there are at any given time what if we just had two avengers like hulk and thor and it's like wow that's a lot of fight you got ahead of you and then while they were busy trying to fight hulk and thor black widow just came back from behind and was like yeah dead killed (laughs) didn't see me yeah like we don't have to have a set piece battle to win this (laughs) Yeah, Captain right. America, sit this one out. Yeah, it's fine. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but because that's not interesting, the Russo yes. brothers aren't going to put that into a film. Exactly. And they're like, you know what? Nah, if you if you, if you, you want to be that, like, asshole writer of the Avengers, that's just like, and then they ran for the Hulk, and that's when Hawkeye yeah. was like, choo! Yeah. Right? <laughs> you it, can have so- that be the story of your battles. Yeah. Because it circumvents expectations, but not in a, like ultimately narratively pleasing way right exactly right. <laughs> yeah anyway you guys do you guys want to play divinity 2 right now <laughs> let's you, do it you just want to, we'll just stop doing this and you guys can we can be let's, the red let's, prince let's and... call it <laughs> and go play some divinity original sin 2 my voice is going right yep. now so like so we i literally think, do need to stop i think we can conclude we all know what metagaming is uh we do it makes sense <laughs> We talked about it meaningfully and uh, definitionally concisely. and concisely, and everyone understands, and we're all good. If you just listen to this podcast, you'll know exactly <laughs> what it means. We found the answer, and now yeah. it's up to you to figure out what it was. And now it's up to you. The metagame of this podcast is figuring out what the, what the fuck <laughs> what we the were talking about. What the fuck is happening? <laughs>
<laughs> but I, I, I genuinely think that the the messiness and the sort of relational associative yeah. connections that we were making throughout the podcast are totally appropriate for the for the kind of work that metagaming as a term and as a practice is supposed to do, which is just to say, thank you for listening to Scholars at Play. <laughs> um, we are going to take our leave, and we would also love to thank Visager. But these are their freely available song, The Plateau at Night, which is our outro and our intro song. Uh, we want to thank all of our Patreon support- supporters, especially our distinguished colleague, Carol R. Thanks, Carol. And if you, uh, yes, and if you'd like to support us on Patreon and find out how you can get a free shout-out on the podcast, go to patreon.com slash scholars at play. If you have questions, thoughts, comments, send them to scholars at playpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, if you want to ask us specifically, you can uh, hit us up on Twitter. I am at digital underscore Derek Kyle. I am. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, at E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. And do you guys want to hear a really fun story real quick? <laughs> Super quick. So, um, you know, I go by E Kyle Romero professionally. My my first name is Eulogio. It's hard to pronounce. And so um, I go by E Kyle Romero. I was very confused for the longest time because the Twitter handle at E Kyle Romero is taken. And I was like, who the fuck else is named E Kyle Romero? Like in the world, right? And I, for, so I was E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. I say this at the end of every episode of this thing. Um, you know, I just found out a couple weeks ago. What's that? Do you know who has the Twitter handle E Kyle Romero? No. Is it, is it, is it one of the scholars at play? It's. Is it's, it ca- it's it's also me. It's, it's, I played I played myself. I played myself this whole time. I made a Twitter. I made Twitter in uh, early college, like when it was kind of just oh starting God. out, and did not realize. That's so. And so when I remade so it, funny. with like you know my Holy modern shit. you know my modern iteration at the start of grad school, uh, where you can oh get my all my gosh. spicy takes about politics. Um, oh my God. Yep. Did not realize that it was me. <laughs> Can't believe you just doxed your own. Alt. I doxed myself. <laughs> uh, can't believe you just did it. Yep. Well, anyway. you know you can get. Yeah. You can also tweet at Kyle's old account. He may yeah. not know yeah. the password anymore. It has anymore, zero tweets. You have to hack that original account <laughs> and then just be a troll to everything he says. Like we've got to just like be like, oh, so you're playing original Divinity Sin two or whatever? Wow, I butchered that name so bad. <laughs> it's fine. I just call it Div two because it's Scho- so scholars at a. That's what we're gonna change your oh my your God. thing to. <laughs> so yep, I Terrell, play myself. Terrell is Black Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> Terrell does not get to say his own handle, except for right now. <laughs> Terrell was silenced. <laughs> <laughs> he sits in the corner. <laughs> Derek used what's the one that does the un the unmuting? I can't remember. There is something for like like muted or or like can't speak, in, and that means you can't use magic in or something Pokemon like that. in like a Final Fantasy. I think it's in Final Fantasy. Oh. I mean, in Div there two, there's an Asuna spell that heals basically all status effects. In Divinity so two, you just need to cast like power. Armor of Frost or like Soothing Cold I, to like I, re up your magic armor. I'm I honestly, cast, I am just playing Divinity 2 right now. I cast me. Power of Friendship on Terrell <laughs> and ask him, what is his Twitter handle? Black Socrates. Terrell reaches out for a high five. Bap. I love you, Terrell. Thank you all <laughs> so much too. for listening. And we will be back again with more Scholars of Play before you know it. Before you even know Take it, you're going to look, there's going to be like 26 episodes on there. 
it's gonna be terrifying. <laughs> we all are very scared. Alright, take care guys. Alright, bye guys. Peace. Like so how you it's said funny, because I was actually also going to add in, like, I've been slowly trying to drag Melanie into video, video games, and yes. I bought her a way to play Tetris, uh-huh. and oh, man. Like, Is it I don't good? even have the exhaustive ways, I don't have, the, like, an exhaustive, like, quote list of things that she said yeah. while playing games, but the ones that I do <laughs> have are kind of incredible. Um, one thing that she said while playing Tetris is... I don't like this print preview situation. Did she mean like the the preview block? Is that what she's talking about? She doesn't like it. It shows you the piece that's coming next. Oh my god. It's essential. And then then I was trying to tell her, I was like, don't forget, you can hold pieces. She was like, I don't like that nonsense. Are you serious? Like, <laughs> Miss, I haven't played Tetris in I don't know how many years. Is playing the most hardcore version of Tetris. Yeah, just like, nah, I don't, I don't like that shit. I just like to like play them, play them as they come. I just live in the moment, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, she does the same thing when she's playing Mario. She's like, I don't have a Napoleon complex. I don't need the mushroom. I'll just. Oh my god, that's awesome. That's how the game's meant to be, right? Like, you're meant to be tiny the whole time, and uh, you take the easy way out, you know? (coughs) She kills me. That's really funny. It's kind of the best.